the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. <laughs> well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Aaron Anderson is engineering today's program with a portion recorded earlier in, in the day by Chris Williams. James Blend is out. And uh, we're glad to have you with us. Today, we're going to talk with Trey Doty, who is the president and CEO of Responder Life. It's a ministry we've uh, talked about and with uh, before, but it's been a while. So we're going to catch up with Trey to find out what Responder Life is doing and how we can uh, support those first responders who live among and work among us. So we will talk to him about that. Also, in our final segment today, we're going to give you the rundown for the next couple of weeks, uh, certainly beginning with Tuesday, uh, tomorrow, uh, through the remainder of this week and then with the guest hosts that will follow over the next couple of weeks as I will be traveling to India. More details to come. First, taking a look at some of the uh, developing stories, first from uh, last week on Friday and then through today, the United States and Mexico agreed on Thursday on a plan to handle the caravan of migrants heading from Central America to the border. An official said that the president suggested at the Montana rally that Democrats welcome all immigrants because they see them as potential voters. Well, that agreement didn't really hold. Mexico has been unable to keep this um, large and growing group of now, they tell us, around 7,000 who are coming uh, now through Mexico toward the United States border. Also, President Trump conceded that missing Saudi activist Jamal Khashoggi is likely dead as, sec- as uh, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin announced that he would not be participating in a Saudi investment conference this week. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo recommended that Saudi Arabia be given more time to complete its investigation. Well, more details have since flowed from that. And Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein will testify before lawmakers behind closed doors this week about the reports that he suggested wearing a wire to secretly record the president and discussed invoking the 25th Amendment to remove him from office. Well, U.S. and Mexican officials agreed on a plan that didn't really hold as the numbers have grown and uh, many have, if not all, passed through the uh, to the Mexican border uh, in an individual, uh, if an individual manages to evade the new system and travels through Mexico to eventually cross the border into the United States, Mexico will now allow um, those persons to be returned to Mexico, according to this agreement, the official says at the established shelters, UN officials will vet the refugees to decide which ones have legitimate claims for refugee status. At a campaign rally in Montana on Thursday, the president accused the Democrats of supporting the caravan of, of migrants because they figure everybody coming is going to vote Democrat. The caravan, which started in Honduras last week, is currently bound for the U.S. as of uh, last week. A uh, a migrant shelter located in the Guatemalan side of the border of Mexico said that hundreds of caravan migrants had reached the area, according to the Associated Press. Uh, earlier on that day, the caravan drew the ire of the president, who threatened via Twitter military force and a closure of the U.S. southern border. Again, fast forward to today, and that uh, number has swollen, they tell us, to around 7,000. 
And President Trump on Thursday said it certainly looks like missing activist and writer Jamal Khashoggi is dead. Before departing for a campaign rally in Montana, he was asked if uh, Khashoggi was dead. He replied, it certainly looks like it. Well, his uh, rhetoric has certainly hardened since then. Secretary of State Pompeo told reporters that he suggested the president allow the officials more time to complete an investigation into Khashoggi's uh, disappearance. He has now done that. And an apology has been issued to the family. The top lawmakers on the House Judiciary and Oversight uh, and Government Reform Committees uh, are planning to interview Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein this week. We'll see what happens there with regard to the uh, uh, suggestion that he was serious about uh, attempting to unseat a sitting president. And on this day, last Friday, I thought it was worth mentioning, looking back, the stock market crashed as the Dow Jones Industrial Average plunged 508 points or 22.6% in value, its biggest daily percentage loss to close at 1,738.74 in what came to be known as Black Monday. Well, that was Friday, but it was Monday then. I think you could follow that. Well, a new poll two weeks before the midterm elections shows Democrats' advantage narrowing and President Trump's approval rating rising. And in an exclusive interview, uh, Saudi Arabia's foreign minister said Saudi activist Jamal Khashoggi was killed in a rogue operation and that the 18 suspects in the killing did not have close ties to the Saudi crown prince. Now, this came as something of news to those who have been observing. Meanwhile, Khashoggi's fiance has been given police protection and Turkey said it will reveal the details of its investigation tomorrow. Well, the caravan of migrants heading from Central America to the U.S. and Mexico border appeared to grow over the weekend as the president insisted U.S. officials are trying to stop the onslaught of illegal aliens and call the caravans a disgrace to the Democratic Party, politicizing the event. National Security Advisor John Bolton is expected to meet with Vladimir Putin and other Russian officials sometime today after the president announced the U.S. will pull out of the nuclear agreement with Russia. And will Hillary Clinton run for president again in 2020? Michael Goodwin, New York Post columnist and Fox News contributor, explains why she will. Well, first, taking a look at this new national poll a few weeks before the midterm elections, two to be more precise, shows the chances of a blue wave are far from a slam dunk for the Democrats. The NBC News Wall Street Journal poll released on Sunday shows 48 percent of registered voters would prefer having the Democrats in control of Congress compared to 41 percent supporting the GOP. Well, that seven point gap has narrowed from 12 point Uh, A 12-point gap, rather, the Democrats had in September. The poll also showed President Trump's approval rating at uh, their highest yet at 47 percent. The poll showed 49 percent disapprove. The current data shows that the Democratic advantage has ebbed, but still with a large advantage. Uh, the And GOP shows some life, Democratic pollster Fred Yang said. He conducted the poll alongside Republican pollster Bill uh, McInturf and Hart Research Associates, uh, told the Wall Street Journal. Why are Democrats apparently losing ground? Well, troubled candidates and distractions may play a role. Representative Keith Ellison on Sunday evening had to fend off allegations of domestic abuse during his debate against his GOP rival for state attorney general. In her debate, Elizabeth Warren, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Warren, uh, had to defend taking a DNA test and an, an attempt to prove her Native American heritage. Warren said that she took the test to, to in an effort rather to rebuild trust in the government through transparency. Hmm. Critics remain dubious about Warren's uh, Native American heritage, and the jury is still out on whether the Massachusetts senator rebuilt any trust. Saudi foreign minister was uh, grilled on activists, um, the death of the activist journalists. Saudi Arabia's foreign minister sent his condolences on Sunday to the family of Jamal Khashoggi, 
but offered no new information on how or why the Saudi activist was killed in the country's consulate in Turkey almost three weeks ago. Speaking during an exclusive interview with Brett Baer, Saudi Foreign Minister Abdel Al-Jaber uh, said that the country is currently investigating the death and that the 18 people implicated in his slaying would be punished appropriately. He said Khashoggi was killed by operatives who went rogue. This was an operation that was a rogue operation, he said. This was an operation, and I'm quoting, uh, where individuals ended up exceeding the authorities and responsibilities they had. They made the mistake uh, when they killed Jamal Khashoggi in the consulate and they tried to cover up for it. Al-Jabir, uh, he added that none of those involved in the Khashoggi death had close ties to the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. Al-Jabir uh, noted that the investigation was still in its early stages and said that Saudi officials currently don't know the exact cause of Khashoggi's death or where his remains are. Still, critics suspect Saudi authorities are trying to cover up the circumstances of the killing to shield their powerful crown prince. And the growing caravan of Honduran migrants streaming through uh, southern Mexico on Sunday, heading toward the United States today, after making an end run around Mexican agents who briefly blocked them at the Guatemalan border. Briefly, they received help at every turn from sympathetic Mexicans who offered food, water and clothing. Hundreds of locals driving pickups, vans, cargo trucks stopped to let them uh, climb, uh, climb on board. The caravan of Central American migrants says... Uh, uh, now grown from anywhere to five to 10,000 people, mainly from Honduras, according to estimates. President Trump tweeted on Sunday that border security officials continued their full effort to stop the onslaught of illegal aliens attempting to travel to the United States southern border via a large migrant caravan, while also describing such a caravan as a disgrace to the Democratic Party. And National Security Advisor John Bolton is expected to meet with Russian President Vladimir Putin and other officials in Moscow in the first of two days of talks. The talks could be tense as they come after President Trump announced the U.S. will pull out of a decades-old bilateral nuclear agreement that he said Russia has been violating for many years. Top Russian officials call the president's move a very dangerous provocation that would lead to full chaos. And will Hillary Clinton run against Donald Trump in a, I guess, recap? Uh, will there be a presidential election rematch between the pair? Michael Goodwin, New York Post columnist and uh, Fox News contributor, predicts it is inevitable. The list of potential Democratic candidates to oppose President Trump is growing, but none are compelling, he says. That's why Clinton has never truly faded out of the spotlight, which is why Clinton, despite her enormous flaws and two presidential defeats, can't be ruled out as the party's best hope. Goodwin writes in his column, uh, God knows she wants uh, wants it more than anybody else. It's also why I've been saying for months that she was keeping her options open and might actually seek a rematch with Trump. And that was before she and Bill Clinton announced their six month speaking tour. Well, on this day in 2000, or excuse me, 1979, the U.S. government allows the deposed Shah of Iran to travel to New York for medical treatment, a decision that precipitates the Iran cross, uh, hostage crisis. Let's get that right. And on this day in 1962, in a nationally broadcast address, President John F. Kennedy reveals the presence of Soviet-built missile bases under construction in Cuba and announces a quarantine of all offensive military equipment being shipped to the communist island nation. We're going to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show again later in the program. We'll talk with uh, the president and CEO of Responder Life, Trey Doty. We'll be back. Wow. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. 
21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, top Democrats are working to manage expectations about a blue wave sweeping the party into power on Capitol Hill. It could still happen, but they're urging caution about those predictions amid uh, fresh signs that the midterms could be much closer than anticipated. Well, with just over two weeks to go before the critical election, Democratic National Committee Chairman Tom Perez said on Monday that he doesn't use the term blue wave to talk about a possible victory for his party, even though House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, who has her eyes on the speaker's gavel, said just days earlier that could uh, that they could be looking at a Democratic tsunami. Perez predicted a tight race for control of Congress. We always knew that this election was going to be close. I don't use the term blue wave. I always talk about the need for the blocking and tracking, Perez said, speaking on CNN. I always talk about the need for organizing to make sure you're leading with your values. And that's how you, we've been uh, winning throughout this year and throughout 2017, end quote. Well, still, Perez said that he is confident that Democrats will take control of the House and pull off victories in a number of gubernatorial races. I don't think the Democratic advantage has ebbed, he said. We're talking about the issues that matter most to people. Well, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders cast even more doubt on the wave uh, narrative. A lot of people talk about the blue wave and stuff, Sanders told The Hill. I don't believe it. Sanders, an independent who ran for president in 2016 as a Democrat, added, I happen to think that on election night we'll find a very, very close situation and maybe a handful of votes determining whether Democrats gain control of the House. Well, the cautious comments come as the shifting midterm landscape reflects a Republican advantage in the Senate and the likely... Uh, likelihood of a tough fight for the control of the House, which could be determined by just a handful of races, even as Democrats are still seen as having the edge. Republican National Committee Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel said on Monday that America's um, rather that uh, the GOP in America should hold the Senate and has a shot at the House. There is a possibility to keep the majority in the House, she said, but it's going to be uh, to depend rather on our voters turning out, which is, of course, stating the obvious. It's always a matter of who turns out for the vote, this election being no different. What they're referring to, however, is uh, who's most energized in this election, and that, of course, makes the big difference. Now, historically, Republicans turn out in greater numbers in the midterms. That may not be the case this time around, and there's plenty of evidence to suggest uh, that it could go either way and that both sides are energized equally so, unclear, but still uh, the case. Anna Quintana writing about the uh, caravan activists uh, suggesting that they're weaponizing poor Central Americans, giving the impression they have a shot at entering the United States and even perhaps uh, remaining there. She writes that for the second time this year, a caravan of Central American migrants is heading to the United States. The group took off from San Pedro Sula earlier this week, last week, actually, a city located in the northern part of Honduras. The caravan crossed into Guatemala on Wednesday and is expected to cross into Mexico, which they have now done uh, to the U.S.'s southern border. Originally, the group started off in the few hundreds. They have now um, grown to around 7,000 people. This latest migrant caravan is another example of groups grandstanding off of desperation and poverty. She believes that the northern triangle region of Central America, where El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras are located, is one of the most violent areas in the world. Transnational organized criminal groups and violent street gangs destabilize these impoverished countries. This leaves massive parts of the population vulnerable and with little means to survive. Unfortunately, local governments lack the capacity and, at times, the political will to address these challenges. Just like the migrant caravan, 
caravan earlier this March. Organizers of this march are weaponizing poor Central Americans. The caravan, rather, was organized by Bartolo Fuentes, a former Honduran legislator and member of the radical leftist Libre Party. He was detained by Guatemalan authorities on Tuesday, but for illegally entering the country. Libre is not a political party, but a destabilizing movement. It was founded in 2011 by former President Manuel uh, Zelaya. In 2009, Zelaya was uh, removed from power after repeated attempts to undermine the constitutional order and rule of law. Zelaya is an ally of socialist governments in Latin America like Castro and Maduro regimes in Cuba and Venezuela. Following Libre's losses in the 2013 and then again in 2017 presidential elections, Libre's uh, turned to a public campaign of generating turmoil and instability. She travels to Honduras frequently and experienced the chaos firsthand, writing that in 2013, I was an international observer for the presidential elections. I was at the electoral tribunal headquarters as the votes were being counted when Zelaya stormed in and held a press conference disputing the election results. His claim was ridiculous as polls had only closed hours before, but he had a personal interest in the election. His wife was the party's candidate. She ended up losing, earning less than 30 percent of the overall vote. Even though various international groups gave the election a clean bill of health. Party activists and agitators protested the results for days afterwards, shutting down major streets and highways. Later in 2015, she returned to Honduras for a business trip and writes, I was preparing to leave my hotel when the military showed up and told us that thousands of demonstrators carrying burning torches were headed to the presidential palace, which was right next to the hotel. For hours, we were confined in the hotel while thousands of protesters shut down traffic at the height of rush hour. This caravan antic is right out of the the disorder and chaos playbook. The timing before the U.S. midterms elections and the change of presidency in Mexico is not coincidental. It is also clear the caravan organizers are more interested in creating turmoil than the well-being of the migrants. The journey through Central America and Mexico is full of hazards and migrants are frequently robbed, sexually assaulted and go for long stretches without eating. Some fell prey to human trafficking organizations. Women and children are particularly vulnerable to these crimes. The problem here is not a lack of compassion for these people, but rather Rather, the dangerous precedent created by allowing a massive caravan to arrive at the U.S. southern border. The U.S. immigration system is already stretched beyond capacity and must prioritize those who apply for asylum in good faith. Source and transit countries in the region have a role to play in stemming these flows. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is traveling to Mexico on Friday to visit with his counterparts and address the crisis. The U.S. must take action to secure its borders and faithfully enforce its law. Loopholes must be closed, adequate enforcement resources brought to bear. This can be done in humane manner while also protecting those who truly qualify for asylum. And again, the caravan moving closer to the border. Thomas Gallatin writes about the what he calls migrant invasion swelling just in time for the midterms. Again, linking the midterm elections, the presidential uh, change in Mexico and the timing of this caravan. He writes that holding flags of their respective countries, primarily Honduran and Guatemalan, a growing mass of Central American migrants traveling north before uh, began to pour over Mexico's southern border on Sunday. Their stated goal is to reach the U.S. where they aim to stay. While some women and children make up this ragtag group, it appears that the vast majority are young men. The current estimated size of the migrant group is somewhere between five to 10,000. We're now hearing today 
7,000. <clears throat> Mexican authorities attempted to stop the migrants and funnel them into shelters where their requests for asylum could be processed, which, by the way, is the legal way to do that. The first free country you, arri- uh, you arrive at, you're supposed to be processed there or to go to the consulate of the country you attempt you're attempting to um, reach. Uh, to do so there. And asylum is supposed to be sought in the first free country that you arrive in rather than um, uh, choosing a country beyond that border. But nonetheless, the caravan quickly grew frustrated, overwhelming Mexican police and illegally crossing the Mexico's southern border by going around processing stations. They met little resistance. This is politically orchestrated, he goes on to write, and timed event to interfere with the upcoming midterm elections. Uh, They would love nothing more than to rekindle the previous outrage over President Trump's zero tolerance enforcement policy on illegal immigration. Um, There's much evidence in the media coverage that offers nothing but an overly simplistic and sympathetic narrative regarding the plight of these migrant invaders. Meanwhile, Trump has sought to address the issue before the invasion of migrants reaches the U.S. southern border. On Friday, he received support from Mexican authorities that they would seek to help stop the migrants. On Saturday, the president declared, we're going to figure it out, adding they're not coming into this country. This morning, he warned that the U.S. would be cutting off or substantially reducing aid to the three Central American nations and question while putting the border patrol and military on alert. But the fact of the matter is that his ability to act on this current immigration crisis is limited. Republicans in Congress need to pass legislation to shut down the legal loopholes that have essentially allowed for de facto catch and release immigration. The underlying problem isn't isn't going to be resolved easily, especially when one party uh, is dedicated to ensuring it remains a crisis or at least a campaign issue. And I would guess right up until the 2020 elections. 30 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Back 33 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Trey Doty. He is the president and CEO of Responder Life. They reach out to those first responders among us and provide the support and help they need. Sometimes it's as simple as a rest stop. We'll talk more with him about that in just a few moments. Well, the question is being asked why the Khashoggi murder dominated the news. And Nate Jackson uh, points out that there's um, there's more uh, to cover in this area than what we've seen. Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi is dead. The Saudi family finally acknowledged after 18 days, after numerous iterations of the official story. Uh, it is now that he was inadvertently killed during a fight that broke out in the Saudi consulate in Turkey and a handful of rogue officials have been fired for bearing um, uh, sole responsibility for his death. Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman is totally innocent, we're being told. Few, if any, actually believe the Saudis' story, of course. The 59-year-old journalist spontaneously took on 15 Saudi security agents. Okay, quite the contrary. Reports are that he wasn't just killed, but, well, dismembered on the scene. His body has never been produced. Furthermore, as the editors of the National Review put it, very little happens in Saudi Arabia without Ben Salman's foreknowledge and approval. So the notion that he would be so unaware of his inner circle's activities regarding one of the regime's highest profile international critics 
is, well, laughable. Well, beyond that quick recap of the story, here are a few things to bear in mind. First of all, and this, of course, doesn't justify the action, uh, this is what authoritarian regimes do, be they Islamic or otherwise. A free press is an anthema to totalitarians. But with Khashoggi, there may be more than meets the eye. He joined the Muslim Brotherhood in the 1970s. He wasn't an advocate for Western-style democracy, instead favoring an Arab Spring-style political Islamic regime. That isn't the, uh, to minimize his death, it's Uh, to see clearly who he was. Well, the media here in America, led by the Washington Post, is running wall-to-wall, or at least did, coverage of his murder primarily because Khashoggi is one of theirs. He is a journalist, an untouchable saint, and his death thus rattles them to the core. But have most Americans heard of the... um, A Gwinnett County, Georgia police officer killed in the line of duty on Saturday. Officer Antoine Tony had just turned 30. He was an outstanding human being and police officer, yet this black cop was murdered by two assailants in the Atlanta area. One killer is in custody. Uh, Tony uh, was one of uh, one of ours, an American citizen serving his country and community honorably. Both of these men's lives matter, but only one got the nonstop media coverage. Well, the uh, strategic reason for that is that the media hopes to pin Khashoggi's murder, at the very least in the uh, in the aftermath, on President Trump. Anything to create the appearance of scandal before the midterms. Which brings us to the uh, uh, parting thought. In 2012, four Americans, including an ambassador, were killed in a terrorist attack on the U.S. Con- in Benghazi. Then President Barack Obama and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton lied about it for weeks solely to preserve Obama's re-election campaign. The media then aided them in this deception. So while the current president, Trump, certainly should have been far uh, stronger in his public condemnation of Saudi, uh, we suspect he's using the incident as leverage behind the scenes. Don't be surprised to see a subtle shift in America's relationship with the Saudis that will benefit the U.S. all while uh, the president uh, gives them brief breathing room publicly. Distasteful? Absolutely. But sometimes that describes American foreign policy out of necessity. And it's interesting to um, trace how the media picks and chooses what it covers, how it covers, and to what end. Well, in another story, President Trump said on Saturday that he plans to roll out a major tax cut to the middle class before November. We're looking at putting in a very major tax cut for middle income people. And if we do that, it'll be something just prior, I would say, to November, the president told reporters after his rally in Nevada on Saturday. We're studying, studying rather, very deeply right now, round the clock, a major tax cut for middle-income people, end quote. Well, the president has taken criticism from Democrats for his tax cuts, which they claim only help large corporations and the top 1%. But the president said the tax cut he's looking to implement soon uh, would not be related to business whatsoever. Hmm. Kevin Brady is working on it. Paul Ryan is working on it, the president said. I would say sometime around the 1st of November, maybe a little before then. So I wouldn't hold your breath, but it's coming. Well, finally, Health and Human Services is moving to reestablish a scientific definition of sex and gender. Well, it's been called for uh, for quite some time, a case where the uh, the question is taken before the court for years now. Uh, we might finally have the mechanism to make that happen, to clarify what the definition 
of uh, sex and gender might be. Well, the Trump administration is considering narrowly defining gender as a biological immutable condition determined by well, genitalia at birth, the most drastic a move yet in a government-wide effort to roll back recognition and protections of transgender people under federal civil rights law. A series of uh, decisions by the Obama administration loosened the legal concept of sex in federal programs, including in education and health care, recognizing sex largely as an individual choice. You are what you choose to be. And prompting fights over bathrooms, dormitories, single-sex programs, and other arenas where gender was once seen as a simple concept. Conservatives, especially evangelical Christians, were incensed. Well, now the Department of Health and Human Services is spearheading an effort to establish a legal definition of sex under Title VI, the uh, or rather Title XI, the federal civil rights law that bans gender discrimination in education programs that receive government financial assistance, according to a memo obtained by the New York Times. Um, the New York Times, um, it was first learned uh, uh, in the tweet from the gray lady, uh, from its uh, editor, Washington editor, uh, Jonathan Wiseman. Uh, the Trump administration has a new definition of sex that would render 1.4 million transgender people legally non-existent. Uh, the uh, story read, sex is a person's status as male or female based on immutable biological traits identifiable by or, at, or before birth. Now, this was a controversial statement of outrage over what the president is apparently uh, considering. Well, aside from properly identifying who is in the White House uh, right now, there's virtually nothing in that tweet which is correct, making it all the uh, more remarkable. Notice how Wiseman claims that this is a new definition of sex when talking about the definition that sex has uh, been in use for uh, all of recorded history until the recent uh, movement convinced the previous administration to begin muddying the waters. Also, nobody becomes legally non-existent if their ID correctly reflects their gender. But um, this new definition, as the New York Times uh, tweet uh, puts it, which Wiseman rendered his, uh, his garments on in public, according to the draft of HHS, the memo, the government would need to adopt an explicit and uniform definition of gender as determined on a biological basis that is clear, grounded in science, objective and administratable. No wonder the New York Times is so upset. Uh, you wouldn't want the government using concepts that are grounded in objective biological science. What's next? Believing in gravity, one might wonder. Well, one can hope that HHS uh, sees this through and an open uh, debate on the subject is invited. Um, it would be certainly timely and I think much uh, welcome by those who are concerned about the drift and shift in definitions that are not provable, that are shifting and have created a, a series of uh, challenges and in some cases abuses uh, that are only now being addressed. Well, pregnancy resource centers were victorious at the Supreme Court earlier this summer, and that win is having a major ripple effect. The NIFLA versus Becerra, the court ruled five to four that states cannot require pro-life pregnancy centers to post advertisements promoting abortion, holding that such laws would violate the free speech rights of those centers. The ruling struck down a 2015 California law that had been uh, had done just that. Well, this ruling is already being felt in Hawaii, where just last month, a district court judge issued a permanent injunction against a similar law, taking into account the legal precedent set in the Nifla Becerra decision. Well, the June Supreme Court ruling is also taking effect to unwind other legislative attacks, including those in San Francisco and Baltimore, 
designed to compel speech and undermine the mission of pro-life pregnancy centers, which, by the way, receive no public money. In addition to protecting free speech, that Supreme Court decision, NIFLA, uh, protected the massive and positive contributions that pregnancy centers make on a daily basis across the country, contributions that translate into real numbers and lives changed. Exactly 50 years ago, the first Pregnancy Resource Center in North America was launched, and such centers quickly became the go-to source for life-affirming alternatives to abortion, offering hope and support to women searching for help. Today, they offer a dramatically expanded spectrum of services to reach women, men, youth, and families with encouragement, vital health information, education, and healing. A new report from the Charlotte Lozier Institute documents just how extensive the benefits of these centers have been. Surveying 2,600 out of an estimated 2,750 pregnancy resource centers, the report calculates that in 2017 alone, seven in 10 centers offered free ultrasounds with 400,100 ultrasounds performed. 295,000 moms and dads attended parenting courses. One in four locations offered STI and STD testing. 24,100 women and men received after-abortion support and recovery help. 97% of centers offered material aid. Over 1 million youth attended community-based sexual risk avoidance presentations. In total, 2 million people received free services at pregnancy resource centers, saving communities an estimated $161 million each year. In addition, 67,400 volunteers, including 7,500 licensed medical professionals, gave their time at pregnancy centers. And while pregnancy testing was one of the earliest services offered by centers 50 years ago, it remains a trademark service that centers are still known for. A family nurse practitioner who describes herself as pro-choice was recently looking to help open reproductive health teen clinics in her California community. She interviewed local youth aged 14 to 24 to assess their needs and reported being floored by their responses. I asked if they knew where they could get pregnancy testing, she wrote. Every single one of them, 85 to be exact, cited a crisis pregnancy center as the number one place they go or have heard of. Why, she asked, in their own words, they offer it for free. You can walk in. You see the sign as you're walking, driving, riding by. This response is not surprising. Clients um, exit surveys compiled by National Pregnancy Center Networks consistently show high levels of satisfaction and strongly indicate the positive reputation that pregnancy centers have in their communities. The scope of pregnancy centers' core services has exploded, but the hallmarks of compassion, respectful, and free care continue to resonate as widely as ever. Did I mention free care? The lives saved and changed through experiences at pregnancy centers are of immeasurable worth. The Lozier Report illustrates these powerful life events by telling individual client stories, stories of courageous moms and dads and sacrificial love. As a movement with roots and humanitarian um, service supported by a long-standing foundation of volunteerism, pregnancy centers represent the best of America. Nine out of every 10 pregnancy center workers are volunteers. Nine out of 10. These volunteers serve people in their own communities who are facing some of the most difficult situations life has to offer. And centers empower women. They empower men and youth to make the courageous choices to walk with them along the way. The formation of lasting, supported relationships at pregnancy centers remain an essential characteristic that permeates all levels of their outreach, medical, educational, and support programs alike. This is not always typical in healthcare and other social service systems today. 
The Supreme Court got it right on free speech protections for pro-life pregnancy centers. And that ruling is, is paramount for the preservation of these liberties, of our liberties. But the ripple effect extends far beyond freedom of speech. It has preserved the good work of countless Americans in their communities. With an eye toward the future, we celebrate the tireless and noble efforts of pregnancy resource centers and we applaud their many successes. That includes the pregnancy resource centers in the greater Portland area, in Vancouver, in the uh, in Hood River and areas all around this um, uh, Pacific Northwest area. Kudos to you all. Thank you for your service. You're making a real difference in the world. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 52 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, I'm looking forward to uh, sharing my conversation with Trey Doty. He's president and CEO of Responder Life. It is a ministry that uh, comes alongside first responders in our community and gives us an opportunity to do the same. We'll talk with him uh, about uh, what they do and how we can uh, how we can help. Well, the pro-life, religiously conservative life site news has been locked out of its Twitter account, pro-life organization. Um, for an article that profiled the rise in SDDs among homosexual men. Now, it's just making the point that certain behavior produces certain problems. Well, the article in question, Why HIV, Syphilis, and Gonorrhea Are Rising Among Homosexuals, was written in 2014, focused on statistics provided by the CDC and the New York Times, so it wasn't um, uh, unique to the organization. Four years later, on the 18th of October, the social media giant Twitter locked LifeSite News from its account for hateful conduct. CDC, New York Times. Well, written by Dr. Gerald Nadal, a molecular biologist and microbiologist who's also president and CEO of the Coalition on Abortion Breast Cancer, the article primarily argued that the rise in STDs among homosexual men was due to a spike in unprotected sex, further aided by the fact that infected individuals were keeping their partners in the dark about their condition. Nadal was uh, countering an article in Bloomberg News at the time, which argued that the sudden spike in STDs among homosexual men was due to homophobia, not sexual activity. Sort of an interesting argument. Gonorrhea and syphilis are on the rise in the United States, mostly in men who have sex with other men, a trend the government said is linked to inadequate testing among people stymied by homophobia and limited access to health care. Again, quoting from Bloomberg News. Later in that article, the director of the CDC's STD Prevention Division was quoted as saying that men who um, uh, see other men will seek confidential services because they're too embarrassed to see their primary care doctors. Well, Nadal later noted that homosexual men comprised just 2% of the population, but were uh, overrepresented in the STD rates. According to the New York Times, this was largely due to homosexual men having a disproportionate amount of unprotected contact. Well, Nadal concluded that homophobia could not be driving the cause behind the spike in STD rates for uh, homosexual men, but rather a suicidal impulse from within. As proof, he cited a 2006 study uh, that showed 60% of homosexual men failed to report their um, condition to all partners, compared to 34% of heterosexual men and 27% of women. Uh, some more statistics I won't bother to go into, but his article remained on LifeSite News for four years until Twitter blocked their account on Thursday last because the headline violated their rules against hateful conduct while promoting violence, threats and harassment against other people on the basis of sexual orientation or serious disease. So printing scientific fact 
quoting the CDC and the New York Times, is apparently uh, no longer permitted if the organization using those quotes um, has a particular bent. Well, no explanation has been given as to what exactly set off the ban, nor has Twitter specified the ban's duration. The only resource offered was the uh, was for LifeSite to remove the tweet or start an appeal process, uh, reported the outlet. For the moment, LifeSite staff cannot post uh, to or otherwise operate their very site. Well, Steve Jalisvik, uh, co-founder and president of LifeSite Nude, said the uh, the ban was total intolerance in line with Silicon Valley's totalitarian mindset. This total intolerance for even reporting government health department statistics that reveal the health dangers of activity betrays what Peter Thiel himself, a homosexual, previously called a totalitarian mindset in Silicon Valley. Uh, Twitter is now trying to force news agencies to report only what is acceptable to their personal views and shutting down balanced factual reporting on the issue. This is getting dangerous for our democracy, which is actually a constitutional republic, since a free press is one of the basic and necessary foundations for a genuinely democratic society. This is uh, getting scary. Uh, Jaslovic went on to say it is... um, in everyone's interest to fight this type of action and even demand government intervention to protect our rights. And one of the things we've talked about before is the nature of the monopoly that we have uh, in some of the social media sites that determines what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, and what you read um, may not be all that's out there giving you the impression uh, that you're getting a full-bodied, uh, balanced uh, perspective in the news. Also, uh, this last week, Twitter announced it would not be banning, let me repeat that, would not be banning Nation of Islam founder Louis Farrakhan for a tweet in which he compared Jews to termites. I don't know how this man uh, manages to worm his way into uh, so many um, social circles, uh, particularly among African Americans, the uh, Black Caucus in the, in the House and so on. It's It's breathtaking to me. Um, but the tweet that in question that should have disqualified him, and it would have if he had been anyone else, uh, the tweet still remains and has not been blocked, though the minister did lose his verified status earlier, uh, earlier this year for tweeting about the satanic Jew and the synagogue of Satan, this time referring to himself as not being an anti-Semite, but an anti-termite. Apparently that was uh, not uh, quoting the New York Times or the CDC, not uh, reflecting scientific understanding of a subject, but simply reflecting his um, anti-Semitic bent. But that was not sufficient grounds to remove him from Twitter. So, uh, again, it's uh, it's puzzling, but it's very alarming to see what is permitted, what's not permitted and how we're supposed to just accept what uh, what we read as being uh, objective, full bodied um, communication. It is not. OK, we're going to take a break here in just a moment as uh, we've got news and traffic coming here in the top of the hour in just a few moments. Uh, but also in the, the next hour, we're going to talk with Trey Doty. He's president and CEO of Responder Life. He joined me in studio earlier today. We're going to talk about uh, this ministry that's uh, doing incredible work encouraging and supporting first responders. I also want to encourage you to take note that there are opportunities for the rest of us who benefit when we dial 911 calling for fire or police. When there's a need for an EMT, uh, these folks run toward the danger. We run away from it. There's a way for us to support them in ways that are constructive and practical. And we'll talk with uh, Trey Doty about that. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back after news and traffic. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Five minutes after five o'clock is our time. 
Later in uh, our next segment, in fact, Trey Doty will be my guest. He's the president and CEO of Responder Life. Uh, he joined me in studio earlier today. We'll share our conversation about this great organization, how they're coming alongside first responders to help them to do the very difficult and challenging work they do so well. Well, Hurricane Willa has grown rapidly into a potentially catastrophic Category 5 storm in the eastern Pacific on a path toward Mexico's western coast, forecasters are saying. Landfall is predicted for late tomorrow or early Wednesday, likely as a powerful Category 4 hurricane, the National Hurricane Center says. Well, the center said uh, Willa is expected to produce life-threatening storm surge, wind and rainfall over portions of southwestern and west-central Mexico beginning on Tuesday. It will also spawn life-threatening surf and riptide conditions. Willa is expected to make landfall about 40 to 60 miles south of Mazatlan, Mexico. AccuWeather hurricane expert uh, Dan uh, Katowski says the hurricane uh, warning was posted for Mexico's western coast between San Blas and Mazatlan. Tropical storm warnings were raised from Playa Perella. I'm not sure how to pronounce these places. San Blas and north of Mazatlan as well. Willa had maximum sustained winds of 160 miles per hour this morning, was centered about 135 miles southwest of Cabo. Uh, it was uh, moving north at seven miles per hour. Hurricane force winds extend out 30 miles from Willa's center and tropical storm force winds were up to 105 miles out. The Hurricane Center said 6 to 12 inches of rain should fall, and some places could see up to 18 inches on parts of Mexico's western uh, Gelasco, uh, western uh, and southern uh, Sonola states, raising the dangers of flash flooding and landslides in mountainous areas, this time coming to the west coast. Well, four quakes struck in less than an hour off the west coast of Canada's Vancouver Island last night. A series of strong earthquakes struck off the coast with the strongest reaching magnitude 6.8. The first was magnitude 6.6, struck at about 10.39 p.m. That's Pacific Daylight Time on Sunday, 135 miles southwest of Port Hardy, British Columbia. That was followed by the most powerful quake in the string, a magnitude 6.8 at about 11.16 p.m. That one was located about 13 miles closer to the island. Six minutes later, a magnitude 6.5 struck in the same general area as the first two. A fourth less powerful quake registered a magnitude 4.9 struck at 11.36 in the same vicinity. Two more quakes, magnitude 4.3 and 4.5 respectively, hit the area early this morning. There were no immediate reports of damage or tsunami warnings. And we learned today that researchers have discovered active fault lines on Mount Hood that could potentially trigger a 7.2 magnitude earthquake, devastating communities and infrastructure as far as West Portland, or rather west of Portland. The fault networks are located to the north, south, and southwest of Mount Hood and extend to the Columbia River. The fault lines were found by Ian Madden of the Oregon Department of Geology and Mineral Industries and Ashley Strag, an assistant professor of geology at Portland State University. The two researchers discovered the faults during analysis of new high-tech imaging and then verified the finding through field research. A 7.2 magnitude earthquake is larger than the 1989 quake near the San Francisco Bay Area. Strike said the faults on Mount Hood are closer to Portland than the epicenter of the 89 earthquake was to San Francisco. This would be a crustal earthquake, as they're known, as opposed to the Cascadia subduction zone 
uh, earthquake Portland has been bracing for. She uh, pointed out subduction zone uh, quakes are deeper uh, below the surface. They last longer, as long as seven minutes, but they are lower in amplitude. The kind of quake we would uh, get from Mount Hood would be shorter, about 20 seconds uh, to less than a minute, and would be strong enough to knock you off your feet. Well, a large quake like that would uh, pose a significant hazard to the city's of Mount, uh, of rather Hood River, Odell, Parkdale, White Salmon, Stevenson, Cascade Locks, Government Camp, and the villages at Mount Hood. The Portland Metro would experience strong ground motion and could suffer liquefaction uh, damage along the waterfront area. Something I'm just beginning to learn about where the a solid ground is like liquid, and they call it liquefaction, and that's something that they are now saying is a concern in this area. Meanwhile, the country's Tornado Alley, a twister-heavy area typically associated with the Great Plains, is now shifting eastward. An alarming new study found more and more tornadoes have been popping up in Mississippi, Arkansas, Tennessee, Louisiana, Alabama, Kentucky, Missouri, Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin, Iowa, and parts of Ohio and Michigan, according to the study. Fewer uh, funnels are breaking out across the Great Plains, including Oklahoma, Texas, and Kansas, with the biggest drop in the central and eastern parts of the Lone Star State. Still, the study said Texas sees the most tornadoes out of any state. So if you're looking to avoid them, you may not want to look there. Dear churchgoer, J.R. Briggs, writing for Christianity Today during this Pastor Appreciation Month, says that uh, your pastor won't tell you, but there are some things he wishes you knew. Dear churchgoer, he says, a pastor would write if uh, given that opportunity. You may not know it, but this is a significant month for your pastor. October is Pastor Appreciation Month, bringing with it a complex mix of conflicting thoughts and emotions for most pastors. A few weeks ago, I spoke with a pastor friend about his recent day off. He was shopping at Home Depot, quickly grabbed a few items for a home project. After checking out, he bumped into a congregant in the parking lot. You can probably guess what happened. A short greeting turned into a much longer conversation. The congregant shared a number of difficult things happening in the church and in his own spirit. Spiritual life. Each question from the pastor uncovered five new uh, frustrations. Forty-five minutes later, they finally parted ways. I asked the pastor how he felt in that moment. It was my day off, he said, but I don't really have a day off. I mean, when I'm not a pastor, this always-on, week-in, week-out grind takes a toll on pastors and their families. It's why leadership guru uh, Peter Drucker says this. Over the years, I have made a career out of studying the most challenging management roles out there. After all of that, I am now convinced the two most difficult jobs in the world are these. One, to be president of the United States, and two, to be the leader in a church. Ministry is an amazing call, full of great joys and significant moments in people's lives, officiating weddings, presiding over funerals, seeing firsthand how lives are changed for Christ. But it's also full of tensions, intense conflict, unrealistic expectations, uh, relational strain, and at times, soul-aching loneliness. I know this firsthand. I served as a local church pastor for 15 years. Now that I'm no longer serving in that role, I want to share an insider's perspective about your pastor's sacred yet difficult calling. A few things your pastor would probably thinking but won't tell you. Whether or not your church recognizes Pastor Appreciation Month, it's on your pastor's mind. It's called Clergy Appreciation Month. It was established back in 92 by a group of pastors and church leaders to honor those who serve in ministry. They grounded the celebration in Paul's words to Timothy. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. No, it's not an official holiday, but uh, it is nationally recognized like Boss Appreciation Day. And chances are your pastor is thinking about it this month. 
Last year, a pastor called me on November 1st. When I asked my friend how he was doing, he said, another year, another pastor appreciation month. His voice trailing off into silence. I knew exactly what he was saying. He wasn't fishing for compliments or looking to be congratulated, but he couldn't hide his disappointment. He felt invisible, like his congregation was trying, uh, was taking him for granted, rather. As long as people are pleased, he told me, they say nothing. This pastor is not self-serving. He's humble, faithful, and gracious. But during that phone call, I realized that one of the greatest gifts someone in the church could have given him at that moment would have been a simple handwritten card or a quick text of gratitude for his faithfulness to the congregation. I was also struck by another thought. How was the congregation supposed to know he was in such need of encouragement? Well, I suppose we should just know that because we should just know that. Well, pastors who serve with uh, uh, with proper motives feel like they can't say anything about Pastor Appreciation Month, especially to those in their own churches. Doing so would seem grossly self-serving. Can you imagine your pastor stepping up to the pulpit on Sunday and saying, Good morning, church. Before I begin my sermon, I want to remind you that this is Pastor Appreciation Month. And if you're wondering, I'd love some gift cards to Starbucks. Well, of course not. Another thing, you don't have to uh, go all out for Pastor Appreciation Month. You don't have to throw a big party, invest in a great deal of um, uh, time or resources, take up a collection or send the pastor a two-week Caribbean vacation. Instead, it's uh, the little things that matter, although those things would probably all be welcomed as well. A few of the most uh, memorable gifts this pastor received from the people in his church for Pastor Appreciation Month um, that might inspire you for a handful of years. A family in our church ordered the pastors a tin of gourmet popcorn and gave it to us with a card at the end of October. This was a small gesture, but one I wonder, I, rather, I won't soon forget. Each mouthful of popcorn was a tangible reminder that my presence was appreciated. Another, two years ago, a gentleman used his company allotted season ticket to bring me and another pastor to a Sunday evening Eagles-Giants football game. It didn't cost him a great deal of money since the tickets were available for his use, but it would have cost me and the other pastor an arm and a leg. Another. Last year, a landscaper in our church planted tulip bulbs in our yard. I love flowers, and he knew it. That's what he did. Each expression was intentional and thoughtful. Gift cards are great, but these gifts were especially significant because they were creative and original. Pastors have told me they wept tears of joy when they read an out-of-the-blue note of encouragement. Whatever you do, a sincere Facebook shout-out, a two-minute word of affirmation during the Sunday announcement, a heartfelt email, a handwritten note, or an arm around your pastor in the hallway between services, know it carries more weight than you may realize. You might assume, well, somebody else has already done it or will do it or has done it. But no, it should fall to you and me. Pastors don't always get this ministry thing right. They may not preach as well as you prefer, pray as much as you deserve, counsel as well as you need, or lead as well as you desire. They know this because they feel they feel it deep in their bones and because congregants are often quick to tell them so. Ministry can be difficult. Still, most pastors are trying their best to serve and lead and pray and listen and preach and love as faithfully as they can. They won't say publicly that they think about Pastor Appreciation Month every October, but many of the pastors I talk to, again, quoting from J.R. Briggs, who's the founder of Kairos Partnership, um, they do, he says, they do think about it. Everyone needs a little encouragement now and then. That includes your pastor. Something to think about during this Pastor Appreciation Month. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we return, we'll talk with Trey Doty, president and CEO of Responder Life. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. As I promised earlier in the program, we have a conversation coming up with Trey Doty, who's the president and CEO of Responder Life. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, yes, Responder Life. What are these guys doing? Others of you might be thinking, who's Responder Life? Well, our goal today is to make sure everybody knows the answer to both of those questions. So, Trey, it's a it's an honor to have you with us here today. Great. Thanks for having me back. You know, I have to apologize because it's been a while. This is a ministry that I care deeply about, but we haven't had this conversation so a while, so I'm glad to have you back. Thank you. Well, let's start by um, answering the question for those who are unfamiliar with Responder Life, what this ministry does and who your target audience is. Well, our target audience is police, fire, EMS, federal law enforcement, dispatch, and corrections. So uh, we often ask the question, who has the first responders back on their worst day uh, when they mm. have our, our back on our worst day? And so that's who we serve. So we equip first responders to uh, thrive. I was on the website and, and uh, I was reminded that there are nearly 3 million professionals serving as police, firefighters, FBI, 911 dispatchers, emergency medical personnel in the United States. These men and women are the first responders to critical emergency situations in their communities. And many of them enter the, uh, the profession with altruistic ideals, but the uh, daily exposure to crime, the violence, the tragedy often turns that idealism into cynicism as time goes by. And we're seeing... Uh, more and more, um, how, how do I put it, um, community uh, anger focused at some of these individuals. Uh, when we call 911, we have certain expectations, but when uh, these men and women who serve us faithfully year after year, um, when they need help, the question is, where do they go? And the answer, Responder Life. Yeah, we're definitely one of those those organizations that are going to connect with those first responders. Well, let's talk about um, some of the challenges they face. We know mm-hmm. what the job entails. We watch TV. <laughs> That's uh-huh. where we think we know. Sure. And we know just by reading the newspaper, some of the challenges they face. I could not do a job like that, but I'm so grateful that there are people who do, whether we're talking about EMTs or firefighters. Talk a little bit about the challenges they face being exposed to that kind of intense pressure over time. Well, one of the things we see is something that we refer to, and if you heard, if it, if there was a clinician on the show today, would talk about cumulative cumulative stress. Mm-hmm. It's that day after day. It's uh, as one group describes it, the million beast things or the mm-hmm. thousand beast things. It's no one incident, but it's those incidents over a week, a month, a year, and a career. Um, as a law enforcement officer, as a firefighter, as a paramedic, that seeing that trauma day after day can't um, help but have an impact on these men and women. Um, we're just not wired. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not created to to see that those kinds of horrific events every day and have it not impact us in yeah. some way. Yeah. In the absence of um, some kind of help, what might we expect in the life of an individual who is exposed to that kind of hyper stress that you described um, over time? What what kind of problems does that then produce? Sure, I don't want to overstate it because right. these right. are these are men and women who go out and are nothing but courageous and resilient. And uh, when I think about the men and women in our community who run toward danger, these are them. Mm-hmm. And but that impact, without being checked over time, uh, can lead to uh, suicide. We see that um, particularly in, in fire and, and law enforcement. Um, we see substance abuse, um, people numbing some of that, the pain from that trauma through, through substance abuse. Uh, we see broken families at times. 
And that's often uh, not because these men and women don't care about their families. Sometimes they just don't know how to go home. So they have a really hard shift and they don't know how to make that transition from doing my job, caring for the community to going home and being quote normal, like just a normal mom or a normal dad at home or a normal husband or wife. Mm. Now, these uh, these men and women are described as public servants, and it seems mm-hmm. to me that we, the public, have an obligation to then serve them as their needs arise. And we, we, as you pointed mm-hmm. out, we don't want to overgeneralize or overstate mm-hmm. the problem, but you can't help but appreciate the fact that anyone who's exposed to the kind of stress that they're under, there's going to be physical and emotional impact. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't do a job anywhere near the kind of challenge, sure. that, and I get stressed out, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So coming up with some way to help them is, I think, something that we can all agree on. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about what Responder Life can offer Mm -hmm. um, in in terms of addressing their unique kinds of of needs. Sure. One of the ways that uh, we do that first is through what we call a rest stop. Love that. (laughs) Yeah, first responder rest stop. And I think the last time I was on the show, we might have had 20-some of those. We now have 54. Oh, that is so uh, cool. And uh, just talking to the director of that program this morning, we have anywhere between 11 and 15 in the queue. And just for folks who haven't heard about the rest stop before and need a reminder, it's a 24-7 access to a room, uh, typically in a church, but we do that in hotels. We do, we've done that in apartment buildings. We've done that in retirement centers where they'll put an apartment or a retirement-centered uh, apartment uh, in Mm-hmm. Uh, they just offer that. And that's uh, keypad access. So that's a secure 24-7 access to that room where they can write reports, uh, grab and go food, uh, any number of things. They can even talk about uh, the scene that they just closed or the, the scene that they just left. And in a way that you couldn't, couldn't talk about that in a Starbucks. Mm, yes. It's hard to talk about, yeah. about a fatality accident. Um, uh, just between yourselves in a Starbucks without other people hearing. And, and while that may be part of your professional conversation, not appropriate for Starbucks. Right. So they have that that space set aside for them. Now, some listeners might wonder, well, why don't they just go back to the station? Uh, we Again, we watch TV. <laughs> oh, Police sure. officers are always back in the station. The uh-huh. firefighters go back. Um, talk a little bit about the challenge of uh, geographically mm-hmm. getting back there uh, that sometimes makes it impossible for that to be a regular occurrence. Well, a couple things come to mind. One is some of the stress that they experience, quite frankly, happens in the precinct. Uh, going back to that uh, that setting uh, where you know the bosses are looking down, looking over your shoulder, and um, it also just disrupts just the the uh, workflow. They're they're in a patrol patrol area. And sometimes it's easier just to duck into a rest stop and do mm-hmm. that. And you have some quiet and you can just write your report or have that conversation that you need to have. And that, that can't always happen. Just like I don't always get the most work done when I'm at my office. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. so this um, this quiet place, um, mm-hmm. what tends to be present for them? Is it just a desk and a computer? Is it you mentioned uh, some light snacks or is mm-hmm. it open 24 hours? What, what does this rest stop tend to be like? They're open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and the rooms can be anywhere from maybe 10 by 12 to uh, much, much larger. Uh, We have some pretty humble spaces, and we have some spaces that, for all intents and purposes, are pretty extravagant. I mean, they're just really well done, and done by people who really care about hospitality for for, uh, men and women that sometimes the community forgets about, or says things that if they were in their shoes would think differently about. Yeah, yeah. 
And so the rooms can uh, be all different sizes. Sometimes there's a couch in there. Uh, there's usually a Keurig coffee machine, a refrigerator, some grab-and-go snacks, you know, granola bars, trail mix, those kinds of things. And Wi-Fi. So they just have access to Wi-Fi and uh, just a, just simple hospitality, mm-hmm. really. Now, I can imagine the benefit that these men and women who serve, they derive from this kind of space. But I can also imagine that for a church, for example, that makes that room available, they can mm-hmm. come and go 24 hours a day, seven days a week. What kind of an impact does that have on the community of believers, for example, in a church um, when there's that kind of relationship? More profound than we could have expected. Uh, the indirect consequences uh, continue to surprise us. One of those is recognizing that uh, these men and women are out doing a dangerous job mm-hmm. most days and often uh, feel threatened because they can be a target of certain people in the public. While most of them us want to avoid them um, by driving the speed limit, and hopefully they didn't catch us if we were driving too fast, <laughs> uh, others look at them as a target. And so the fact that they're providing some safe haven uh, for these folks in uniform is a big deal for them. The other is that they get to see the community through the eyes of law enforcement mm-hmm. who are in contact with um, the neighborhoods uh, in our city every day. So they know what really happens. A lot of us in church like to think we know what happens out there. We have an idea. Well, we can live with that idea. We don't really want to know what happens mm-hmm. around our church. And so they begin to see the community and the real needs in the community in a, in a different way. We've also seen churches and law enforcement departments partner, whether it's caring for homeless, whether it's caring for uh, those in uh, low-income housing. We saw a church, actually a small church, uh, officer reached out to a small church one summer, said, I've been getting so many calls from this apartment building. And uh, if I was wondering if you guys could just help, help me out. These wow. are a lot of kids, really good kids. I'm getting called on them and their parents are working two jobs um, just to make ends meet. They're not, they're a little mischievous, but they're not doing anything that bad. And could you help out? Well, the church jumped at the opportunity and they sponsored this apartment complex for that summer and subsequent summers, providing meals for kids, lunches, and then activities a few times a week. So the church felt like this was ministry handed to them on a silver platter. The apartment complex loved it. Law enforcement was getting called less to that apartment complex for what really amounted to trivial calls. Mm -hmm. So it was a win all the way around. What a tremendous opportunity. We're talking about Responder Life. You can go to their website, responderlife.org, and learn more about the the organization as well as uh, the rest stop that was just described, how you and your congregation can come alongside uh, these uh, first responders to help. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Trey Doty. He's the president and CEO of Responder Life. Back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Trey Doty, he's the president and CEO of Responder Life. You can find out more at responderlife.org, a great uh, resource for learning more about uh, how this is reaching out and helping to uh, well, help men and women in uniform, d- despite what kind of uniform they might be uh, making to cope with some of the challenges of the work they do. I know one of the things that Responder Life is doing is uh, offering peer mentoring, where uh, those who are inside the organization, uh, who are first responders, who know the job, who know the pressures, are uh, serving as mentors for others in their profession. Describe what that's like and how that 
uh, benefits those who might be struggling or at least need an outlet um, to help them to cope with some of the challenges? Well, sure. There's there's nothing like somebody who knows our mm-hmm. job to come alongside of us. And nobody who has more credibility than somebody who understands our job and comes alongside so one of the things we've we've recognized is that when there are peers and well-trained peers in place who can listen well, uh, who offer good sound counsel, and who are taking themselves and can be a model to the rest of the agency, uh, that just lifts the culture. We see we see drops in absenteeism, or mm. yeah, we see absenteeism rates of absenteeism drop. Uh, we see some other things uh, taken care of. We talked about, remember, we talked about suicide before. Yes. Uh, and we talked about uh, substance abuse. So being able to recognize that somebody's in a difficult place early on is a way to avoid some of those coping behaviors that once we go down that road, it's uh, sometimes hard to come back from. How do you identify those who are um, peers who should mentor and those who mm-hmm. need to be mentored? Oh, Sure. So um, our our peer support uh, is what we're doing is when we go into an agency and we work with them is that we actually just send out a survey. Who would you like to talk to? Who do you trust in your agency? And we we get back a group of people that um, as we ask around and follow up with that, they say, "Oh, I would I would go talk to that person." They already do this. They mm-hmm. don't even need a title. Um, they're just a good listening ear and a support and they would do anything for me. Mm -hmm. And so we identify it through a survey we follow up with some interviews. We really want to make sure we have the right folks. And then we have a, they, they go through an intensive three day training where the first two days they're looking really at themselves. Something I ask them in training is what shows up when you show up Mm -hmm. and do you show up well for your peers when they're in need so that even if your peer is going through something that you're going through, you're able to set that aside because you know you have people to talk to about that and you can really be present. And uh, I also joke around with them. I often say, okay, now most of you are looking for tools that you can just go and inflict on your peers. <laughs> and I said, I'm not going to give you that today uh, because remember, you're the program. You being eyeball to eyeball with another human being, there's nothing more healing. And so we spend uh, the first two days on that, helping them uh, find ways that they can be healthy in their own lives before the third day when we give them some critical conversation skills where they're leading people uh, through a conversation where they're coming up with their own solutions and acting on it themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, these uh, first responders don't live and work in isolation. Every one of them comes mm-hmm. from and is part of a family, whether they're sure. a husband or wife or a brother or a sister. Mm-hmm. Um, talk a little bit about the support for families who uh, live with uh, and alongside first responders uh, and um, how you can help them to cope with the life that they are now a part of because of the work their first responder does. Sure. Many of the calls we get are from family members. Mm. And I had a law enforcement officer recently say, I went through an event. It wasn't a big deal to me, but it was a really big deal to my wife. And she's still struggling with the impact of that call. And he said, I'm fine. And that's just how trauma often works is what's traumatic for one person may not be traumatic for for mm-hmm. another and vice versa. So we get calls uh, when family members are concerned about the, the safe, they're concerned about the safety of, 
of their law enforcement or fire uh, fighter or uh, dispatcher or even corrections officer. And so we, we can come alongside and much of what we can provide is a little bit of education. Hey, this is what your first responder is going through. When you see them at home and you see these kinds of emotions or you see these kinds of reactions, we just want to let you know that's normal. Mm. And just by knowing what's normal uh, can, can really help. And then we tell the first responder, hey, you're not off the hook just because your emotional response is, is normal or your, your emotional or mental or spiritual response is normal. You still have to take out the trash. So <laughs> if your wife asks you to take out the, tra- take out the trash and uh, you don't get off the hook that easily. Um, but, it, but it helps the family to learn the rhythm of the, of the job. Mm. And the, now, does that include uh, children as well? Because I would imagine they also are impacted by stress that might be in the home. Yeah, they're they're aware of that, and many families I know um, talk to their kids about some of those things, especially when there are events on the news that certain agencies mm-hmm. are involved with, and it might be a little more public. Uh, some of our work with federal law law enforcement, uh, we see agents and other personnel out in the field after things like Las Vegas or San Bernardino or many of the other mass casualty events. And so kids are really concerned about their mom or dad. They're going off to those things. And so talking to them, helping helping parents oftentimes talk to their, how do I talk to my kids about these events? So we'll walk them through that. Or we have a good group of mental health professionals who uh, give us some handholds for how to have those conversations. What a great uh, ministry to uh, to those who are first responders. I know for many of us, we are very sympathetic with the kind of work that they do and their willingness to run toward danger when we're running away from it, mm-hmm. that when we call the number, someone will come despite the fact that they recognize that this this could be um, a, a situation that could compromise their safety. Mm-hmm. So we appreciate that, but we're not always sure what we can do to um, express that appreciation. I try to, if I'm at a Starbucks or something, or I see someone in uniform, I try to say, thank you, I appreciate um, your service. But beyond that, what can we do to not only have that feeling of gratitude, but to express that in a constructive way that might help relieve at least some of the stress or make that stress seem worth it because the public mm-hmm. um, appreciates the work that they do? What can we do? Yeah, I think you you nailed it. Uh, just when you see a first responder and... By the way, if it's an officer in a Starbucks, don't come up behind him or her and surprise them. <laughs> <laughs> no. So, uh, Bad idea. But, uh, but just I, even, if, if, even if you see uh, an officer sitting in a Starbucks or you see a firefighter, just thanking them for what they do, just mm-hmm. recognizing that. That's a really big deal. And while they might, may hide some of that emotion that they feel about that in the moment, um, I know being on the other side of things, being as being a chaplain as well, that they really appreciate that. And more often than not, you might even see uh, uh, them tear up a little bit because they don't hear that as often as, as we think they might. And uh, especially if, if there's a, a story about how a first responder helped you. And um, it's always nice to hear for any of us mm-hmm. um, when something we've done has had an impact on somebody else's life. And that's why they got into it in the first place, yeah. because they wanted to be a part of helping their community through really difficult times. Now, how is Responder Life supported financially? So we're supported through private donations and so private contributions. So that means individuals and, and churches uh, who take a look at this and say, ask the question you asked, how do I support first responders? Well, one way is, is by giving uh, to Responder Life. It allows us to open up more rest stops, uh, work with churches on how to do that. It also helps subsidize our peer programs, 
one of the challenges we have with peer programs is that while people may be the biggest asset in any agency, they often get, get the least amount of funding in terms of their emotional, psychological, and spiritual support. That tide is changing, I'm happy to say, and people recognizing the need for that. Um, but there's still a ways to go. Yeah. And so uh, we have to subsidize um, our training in, in that way as we come alongside of departments. So I, I would encourage our listeners, if you'd like to be a part of that support, whether it's a rest stop or you just like to financially contribute to this ongoing work, you can go to the website. It does a great job of giving that opportunity uh, to give. Again, that's responderlife.org. And I, I just think you do great work. I'm so grateful that you're here uh, ministering to first responders in our community and giving us an opportunity to do so as well. Again, responderlife.org. Uh, I would encourage you to check that out. Well, Trey, I appreciate so much your talking with us today, and I'm so thankful for the work that you're doing, and I look forward to our next conversation. Great. Thank you so much. <laughs> Again, Trey Doty is the president and CEO of Responder Life. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we will be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. This is our final segment for the day. Well, I'm going to um, embark on a grand adventure that begins on Thursday. I think I've mentioned it just in passing that I'll be traveling to India, and I plan to uh, travel uh, in country for about 14 days, and so I will be away from studio for that length of time, but I wanted to let you know what to expect in the meantime, I hopefully will be talking a bit more in detail about uh, that trip later this week. But taking a look at the remainder of this week and beyond, tomorrow we're going to talk with Ella Pritchard, who is the author of Reclaiming Joy, a primer for widows. Now, you don't often think of those two things uh, residing in the same space, but you can experience joy and still be a widow. Uh, again, Ella's book is titled Reclaiming Joy, a primer or primer, depending on your uh, a preference, a primer for widows. On Wednesday, we'll talk with Robert Walgamuth, who is the author of Lies Men Believe and the Truth That Sets Them Free. We'll find out what um, he says men believe uh, to be true, but is actually false when he joins us on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, um, we are going to uh, begin our guest host series, beginning with uh, Gary Brashears. Looking forward to having uh, Professor Brashears come in for two hours and uh, Literally, I uh, when we ask uh, a guest host to come in, we leave it to them to choose what subjects they'd like to cover. As a professor of uh, in seminary, Gary Bashir's uh, may choose any number of avenues to uh, uh, to take, but we're looking forward to giving him the mic for two hours as he guest hosts in the first in a series on Thursday of this week. I will be on the uh, on my way to Amsterdam from Amsterdam to um, where am I? flying into to India. It's a pretty big country. I'm landing somewhere in it. I can't remember which airport at the moment. I'll fill you in later. Um, so uh, Gary Brashears will be the first uh, guest host during that time. On Friday, we're going to share the best of the Georgine Rice Show, So James Blend Informs Me, and I think that will be a Friday fun show uh, on this Friday. And then among the lineup, uh, among those who will be guest hosting for me, um, Pastor Greg Allen, who is the uh, senior pastor at Bethany Bible Church. He's also an adjunct professor at Multnomah 
Um, and he's going to take those two hours. My guess is he's going to cover from a biblical perspective issues that are of interest to us all. The director of local ministries here at KPDQ, Mike Lee, will fill in as a guest host during my absence. We're looking forward to that. Dr. Michelle Watson, who is an author and the host of The Dad Whisperer, heard here on KPDQ, I think Mondays at 2. She's going to be a guest host as well while I'm away. And then James Blend, who is the producer of this program, and Justin Mansfield, who is the operations director for KPDQ, along with a special guest. I hear it on good authority that that special guest is a comedian. I will be filling in on, I believe it's a Friday in my absence, so we're looking forward to hearing what that's going to be all about. I have to admit, I'm a little nervous. James, Justin, and a comedian I've never met. We can be in prayer for that. Chris is telling me that there's nothing to worry about. Rana Mall is the executive director of Transitional Youth, and she is going to guest host uh, one day in my absence. Rana, I just am so impressed with this uh, woman. If you recall, she has told her story at the Transitional Youth Radiothons that we've hosted over the years about her um, upbringing. She was homeless for a period of time, and um, some of the challenges she has faced as a younger woman would have um, defeated most of us. But she is an incredible woman of faith. She has uh, strong ties to homeless youth on the streets of Portland and uh, great uh, spiritual insight. She is a, a woman of faith, and I'm looking forward to hearing back on uh, Rana Mall, who is uh, going to take one of the guest host spots in my absence. Again, she is the executive director of Transitional Youth. And then uh, on uh, the day after election, I think it's the day after or somewhere around election, James Blend is going to orchestrate election coverage. Among his guests, Jason Williams will uh, join him to look at local races and uh, initiatives on the ballot. Again, James Blend will be hosting and he'll have a lineup of guests for post-election coverage. I can hardly believe since we've been looking ahead to the midterm elections for about the last seven years, it seems. I know it's only been months, but it seems like year, a dec- the last decade we've been talking about the midterm elections. 30 minutes after the polls closed, then the presidential election for 2020 begins. So there's really no relief unless you hop on a plane and fly to India. I can't believe I'm not going to be here for all of that. Okay, can I tell you? Just a little bit excited. I'm not going to be here for I'm not going to know who won, who lost. I'll probably check it out, but I don't have to talk about it. I'm just going to be over in India doing stuff. So that's just between us. Please don't spread that around. It's just between us. Anyway, James Blend is going to provide some election coverage among his guests, Jason Williams. But there will be others taking a look at local and national headlines. Joe Anfuso, who is the uh, director of Forward Edge, will also be guest hosting in my absence. I'm looking forward to uh, hearing more about that. And finally, Clark Tanner, who's the regional director of Pastor Serve, and of course, he's the uh, former pastor of Beaverton Christian. Uh, he's back in the area. I think I've had him on the program since his return. He's going to take one of those slots uh, as well. Uh, again, he is currently regional director of Pastor Serve. And my guess is, and this might be an informed guess, he He's going to talk about uh, pastors and the challenges they face in the work that he's doing. So uh, that's uh, definitely one worth uh, listening to. So those are some of the guest hosts. And my understanding is we still have a couple of um, openings available that are being worked on. Uh, Folks have been asked to consider uh, that possibility. And uh, James being out today, we'll probably have more details uh, tomorrow. So that's um, that's the lineup for uh, my absence over the next couple of weeks, beginning on Thursday next. I have to say I'm looking forward to traveling. Um, I need to, in fact, find out um, what I'm free to discuss at this point and what I'm not free to discuss, and then I'll let you know 
as soon as I'm clear on that, because it's important that we respect the safety of others uh, with whom we will be uh, meeting and uh, for the the purpose of the trip. So I'll find that out and uh, give you more details. I'm not trying to be mysterious. Um, just not sure what the uh, parameters are at this point, but we'll definitely fill you in. All right. want to thank uh, Chris Williams and um, let's see, Aaron, you know, I asked him last time what his last name was. What's Aaron and Aaron uh, Anderson, Aaron Anderson. Uh, also in <laughs> engineered today's program, James Blend out for the day back tomorrow. And I want to thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Hope you will join us here tomorrow. Again, we'll talk with Ella Pritchard, author of Reclaiming Joy. A primer, a primer for widows. Thanks for listening. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.